1857, President James Buchanan sent an army expedition to Utah. It was sure to be an arduous, difficult campaign, with many ways to suffer and few ways to win glory. But who were the soldiers marching against the Latter-day Saints? On today's episode, we will explore the soldiers and teamsters, the selfless heroes and hopeless drunks that made up Johnston's army. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. In 1857, the Army force assembled for the Utah campaign, which we remember today as Johnston's Army, was made up of 2,500 soldiers from various units, the 10th Infantry from Minnesota, the 5th Infantry from Florida, the 2nd Dragoons from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, a light battery of the 4th Division Artillery, and one dogged U.S. Marine, Lieutenant Robert Browning, who volunteered to accompany the Army as an observer. Meanwhile, Army officers joked that the novelty of an Army campaign would quickly wear off for the Marine, and the next time he saw a ship or a Marine barracks, it would be a long time before he volunteered for land service again. After General William Harney, the original commander, was redirected to Kansas, the task of leading the expedition fell to Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston. Personally, Johnston despised Latter-day Saints, and his contempt for them would only grow over the next few years. But neither Johnston, his officers, or the soldiers under his command viewed the campaign with much enthusiasm. For them, it meant a hard, difficult march across a vast, open continent. It meant long, forced separation from family, and it meant cold and heat, snow and mud. Johnston's friend and fellow Southerner, Robert E. Lee, wrote him a letter in August of 1857, both congratulating him on his command and commiserating with him. Although I consider it highly complimentary to you to be selected for this service, he wrote, over others more convenient and accessible, still, I am sorry you are taken away from the regiments and sent so far. You will have the consolation, however, of doing your duty, and we will probably follow. Lee encouraged Johnston not to bring his wife, Mrs. Johnston, on this campaign. Tell Mrs. Johnston, wives are a perfect drag out there, and if I were her, I would not go. Besides, <laughs> Brigham's 50 female saints will look upon her as a poor, imposed-on sinner, and she will not be appreciated in that community. Now, as with the U.S. Army today, none of the soldiers on the Utah expedition were drafted or conscripted. They were all volunteers. So what kind of men joined the expedition, and what were they like? The majority of soldiers in Johnston's army were foreign-born immigrants. Both the United States troops and the Latter-day Saints Nauvoo Legion benefited from numbers of British deserters from the Crimean War, as well as German, Irish, and Scandinavian immigrants. We get some insight into the lives of these men in the journal of Dr. Robert Bartholomew, the regimental surgeon to the 10th Infantry Division. He described both the men who made up the force and the various medical problems they suffered from. He wrote, As medical officer to the regiment, it became my duty to examine those professing themselves unable to walk, and of such as fell ill upon the march. These, he wrote, consisted principally of those soldiers who were prostrated by the effects of long-continued drunkenness, 
combined with high temperatures. In his experience, volunteers generally fell into one of two categories. The first group included healthy, prudent, and temperate men of the regiment, who constantly improved in physical vigor and endurance, always performing their duties cheerfully. These included soldiers like the German immigrants Charles Wilken and Theodore Schwann, who enlisted as privates in the 4th and 10th Infantry. Charles Wilken, who stood at 6 foot 4 inches tall, had previously served as a sergeant in the Prussian Army and had earned the Iron Cross for heroism during the war between Prussia and Denmark. But the other group that Dr. Bartholomew noted was made up of inveterate drunkards who abstained from whiskey only when they could not procure it. They were, as he said, old, broken-down, worthless recruits who became more despondent the longer the campaign lasted, which the doctor attributed to the long-continued and excessive use of strong drink and the ceaseless chewing of tobacco. But worse than any of the soldiers were the Teamsters, the civilian contractors that drove supply wagons for the army. Unlike the soldiers, these Teamsters were not subject to military law or discipline. In fact, in the middle of the vast, empty wilderness, there was, it seemed, no law that could control them. Brigham Young would later tell the U.S. Army Quartermaster, Major Van Vliet, that he had no objection to the soldiers themselves coming into the valley. Of greater concern to him was the riffraff that followed. He told the Major that if the Saints allowed the soldiers to come into the territory, it would be opening the door for the entrance of the rabble from the frontiers, who would, as in former times, persecute and annoy us. Brigham Young was not the only one who took a dim view of these contractors. Judge Delena Eccles, the new federal judge who traveled with the army, described the masses of contractors and camp followers as a disreputable collection of St. Louis wharf rats. These included men like the Missourian William Quantrill, who in 1857 already had a small band of Missourians following him. Percival Lowe, a former first sergeant in the Dragoons, now joined the expedition as the master of transportation. He found the Teamsters who were to work for him to be little better than a rabble of thieves, thugs, and worthless characters. They seemed an off-scouring of the slums, men leaving their country for their country's good. The variety and makeup of these fellows, many of them fleeing from justice, was curious enough. They were, frankly, the most blear-eyed, godforsaken-looking set I ever saw. A young soldier on the campaign, Private Robert Morris Peck, left a colorful first-hand description of what life was like for the soldiers among the camp followers and teamsters in Johnston's army, especially on payday. He wrote, We arrived at Camp Scott in the first days of June. A paymaster who had followed us arrived about the same time and paid the soldiers off. Gambling was rife throughout the camp, and as usually happens in a short time, a few sharpers had nearly all the soldiers' money. Among the celebrities of the camps, I had frequently heard the name of Charlie Hart, whose notoriety seemed to be derived from his reckless betting and his phenomenal winnings. One day, Private Peck saw the famous Hart walk into the gambling tent. He had, Private Peck recalled, an ungraceful, slouchy walk, and he was by no means prepossessing in features. But he had evidently struck it rich, 
for his clothes were all new, with high-heeled calfskin boots, a Colt pistol swinging from his waist, a fancy blue flannel shirt, and a colored silk handkerchief tied loosely around his neck. Hart walked up to a table, opened a bag of gold coins, and asked the dealer, Take a tap, pard? Meaning, would the dealer bet an equal amount of money on the turn of a single card? The dealer accepted the challenge. Both men placed their pistols on the table in front to ensure fair play. Shuffling the deck, the dealer turned over two cards. And Hart had won again. As the dealer began to curse and protest, Hart drew his pistol, pointing it directly between the dealer's eyes. Back out. Don't even touch your pistol. I'll give it back once I rake in. With one hand holding a steady aim at the dealer, the other hand swept up the winnings, the twenties, tens, fives, and two and a half pieces. But Hart didn't pick up the silver coins on the table, remarking, Heh, I don't carry such chicken feet as this. Grabbing a handful of the coins, he threw them into the air. The crowd scrambled to peck them up. He then gave the dealer back his pistol and a $20 piece. But the next day, the phenomenal luck of Charlie Hart wore out. He lost all of his winnings and decided to abandon the expedition and returned to Kansas dead broke. Hart was not the only one who decided to abandon the expedition. One officer accompanying the force wrote, Marching is not dancing. Desertion is becoming alarmingly common. Should it continue at this rate, we will not take half our present number to Utah. So what happened to the men serving in Johnston's army? Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston, who commanded the campaign, would himself take up arms against the United States in the Civil War. He would become one of the Confederacy's most celebrated generals, and in 1862, he would be killed in the fighting at Shiloh. Theodore Schwann, the young German immigrant, would rise to the ranks of Major General and would later fight for the Union in the American Civil War. He would receive the Medal of Honor for heroism at the Battle of Peebles Farm in 1864. William Quantrill, one of the Teamsters and St. Louis Wharf Rats, would later lead an infamous guerrilla band in Missouri during the Civil War. Following his attack on Lawrence, Kansas in 1863, which ended in the murder of 150 men and boys, he became one of the period's most notorious war criminals. Lieutenant Robert Browning, the dashing young Marine officer, would return to sea duty aboard the USS Levant. Tragically, the ship sank in the Pacific Ocean in 1860. Browning, along with all hands, went down with the ship. For Charles Wilkin, the six-foot-four German immigrant who had won the Iron Cross, the decision to march to Utah would change the course of his life. On October 7, 1857, he too decided he had had enough of campaigning and would desert. He left the column on the pretense of hunting some food and made his way west. He was taken prisoner by the Latter-day Saint militia. Later, he would be baptized into the church. He became an entrepreneur, a bodyguard for John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff, and a special police officer in Salt Lake City. Three of his descendants have been candidates for the U.S. presidency, George Romney, Mitt Romney, and John Huntsman. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History. I'm your host, Nate Olson.